Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. When we first spoke Greg Gigan on the Paracast, I was looking at his credentials and mentioned that, I'm quoting him, I think it's important to chat about the development of saucer clubs and UFO organizations over the course of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And Greg, you've been talking about me, I think. (laughs) How's that? I was originally a reader of a magazine called Flying Saucers by Ray Palmer. Do you know who Ray Palmer was? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I met him once, by the way. Oh, really? Yes. I can tell you stories. So anyway, there was a section in Flying Saucers magazine called Saucer Club News, which was kind of like a social network, maybe Mm -hmm. an early precursor to Facebook. And you would put information about your saucer club. If you didn't have a saucer club, you'd form one. Most of my friends for the next 50 years or so came out of saucer club news, like Jerry Clark and Alan Greenfield and Rick Hilberg and others. Came from saucer club news, came from Ray Palmer. So that's number one. Number two, as I mentioned, I had interviewed him once, Palmer, and he's quite a character. In fact, Before we got started on the show, I'm reading a book, Greg, which maybe you were heard about, called The Man from Mars. Yep, yep. From Fred Nardis. Except he doesn't quote me at all in the book. And I had a magazine where I not only ran the interview with Palmer, and also arranged to interview him on a couple of radio shows, but I also had regular stuff from Richard Shaver. Mm -hmm. And I met and interviewed Richard Shaver, but he didn't quote me. But I liked the book anyway. (laughs) let me ask you something here you're a professor of history greg as we proceed with your credentials how did you decide to look into the paranormal with the flying saucer mystery being part of it yeah so it's kind of two intersecting kind of pathways right one's a kind of a longer one one was a sort of a more immediate thing the the more immediate story is that i was at a conference professional conference with a colleague of mine her name is monica black who had, was working on and finished the book is out now was studying this kind of renaissance in supernatural paranormal interest and mystical phenomenon right after World War II in Germany that I had never heard of. I did not know that right after the war ended, like for a good decade or more, one of the things that was going on is that apparently Germans were uh, utterly fascinated with the paranormal. And I had not known this. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. So after she gave a talk, I said, you know, I've always wondered whether the whole UFO thing had 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 an impact over there at that time. Uh, have you come across that? She says, no, I haven't. She says, you know, we're working with a colleague on a book, you know, and if you wanted to write up an article on that, we'd definitely be interested. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm working on this. I, 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 you know, I don't think so. But it was planted in my head. And I was like, you know, let me. And so I just started futzing around. I started going into some databases that I had access to because uh, I know German, and I went in and looked at newspapers from the time. And sure enough, there was all this stuff about flying saucers uh, already in the f- late 40s, early 50s. 
I'm like, well, let me look at this. And I started outlining my thoughts. And pretty soon I realized I was writing an article about it. But what triggered it for me, and this is the longer part of it, is like so many people, all of us who are interested, it just seems to me just virtually everybody I know who's ever been interested in this has the same or a similar story, which is I got interested in it when I was really young. I was just utterly fascinated with this stuff. I was a was a kind of a a, a loner of, as a kid because I was sickly for a long period of time. I had a lot of time on my hands. I kind of always was a bit nerdy <laughs> and really liked to sort of dive into books. And so I, because of that, I, I really had all this this sort of time where I'd be alone. And I one of the things I, I became really fascinated with was flying saucers and, and UFOs. You're and talking read, about it, me here, fellow traveler. <laughs> Is that right? I think there's a lot of us who are like this, right? A, a bunch of us are like this. And I just couldn't get enough. I, and I read everything. I was uh, an equal opportunity reader. I didn't care if it was way out there stuff, middle of the road, nuts and bolts stuff, fill class stuff and debunkers, anything I could get my hands on, I just I just devoured. And I, I really couldn't, you know, stop thinking about it, mulling it over, thinking about it. And I, I to this day, I don't I'm not kidding. I, I credit in large measure my sort of going into academia to that exposure to the whole ufology world. Like it was a world where people were always interested and curious to know more and more and more. And that kind of has stayed with me ever since. Um, it's, it's the thing that fuels me as, a, as an academic is I'm just curious about things. I, you know, I, that, I, don't, I don't necessarily have an ax to grind. I'm just really curious. So, so what, that sparked it. And then when I, I, from that point, I, to go back to the original story, then I was looking into it. I was, and a friend of mine said, you know, you ought to write a book about this. I said, come on, you know, I can't write a book about this. There must be tons of historians who've written books on this. And then I looked and I realized, you know, there's no professors of history outside of David Jacobs that I know of who's ever written a full length history of the UFO phenomenon. And there, people have done bits and pieces of it in articles and things, but, but historians, we kind of have neglected this topic. And that's when I said to myself, I'm going to dive in. So for me, this is, this is um, a, a, a real sort of um, a, a delight in so many ways, because in so many ways, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm returning to my childhood. I'm revisiting. <laughs> it's so interesting to read and revisit things that I remember reading when I was younger and now, of course, I see them not only with as somebody who's older, but I see them now with the eyes of a historian. And it's 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 fascinating to me. I, I, I recall how I was, you know, I felt when I was reading certain things and now I see them in a different light and, and, and understand them. So it's that's how I got into this. And that's what sort of in, in large measure drives me. Greg, do you bring this to your students there or is this a quiet pursuit? Oh no, not quiet at all. I, I I bring this to my students. I um I always tell the students the first day of class, whatever the classes I'm teaching, I, I tell them about the research projects I'm working on and I always bring up the the, the, the book on the history of the UFO phenomenon and, and there's lots and lots of like, oh wow kind of factor. And then I teach a course. I teach a course I've been teaching now for several years 
called uh, The History of Monsters, Aliens, and the Supernatural, in which I, you know, the UFO thing can only be a, a part of it because I kind of go from the ancient world to, yeah, UFOs. And so it only is it, part of it. But but uh, lots and lots of students in that class are, are students who come up to me from the first day and say, I'm in I'm in this for the UFOs. <laughs> I'm, I'm less interested in monsters. I'm interested in UFOs. And so uh, I talk about it a lot with them. And I will tell you, there is a there is a lot of appetite for the topic. That is good to hear. Last week, we had a woman named Zelia Edgar on the Paracast. She's 25, going on 26. Wow. And she has an extraordinary background in the field. And if I did not know her age, because her voice is very rich, I would think she's a woman in her 30s or 40s, because she's been around the block. Let me ask you a question that we're going to have to let sit till the next segment, and that is, Greg Igigin, have you ever, ever seen a UFO or had any other kind of paranormal encounter? And we're not going to let you answer till the next segment, so give people a chance to digest the question. And you probably have a fixed answer already, but that's how it goes. Greg Igigin is a professor of history who's studying, amongst other things, the paranormal. Our guest co-host is Kurt Collins. I'm Gene Steinberger in The Paracast. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're like most Americans, you're pretty much in disbelief with what's going on in the world. As we all know, global problems are having local consequences. Too many of them. And if the peanut butter really hits the fan, are you ready? Grocery store supply chains are only as strong as their weakest link. Don't wait for them to break. Now's the time to secure emergency food for everyone in your family. My Patriot Supply is America's largest preparedness company. Our specially packaged and delicious food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. It'll be there when you need it. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and pick up several emergency food kits. There are a dozen different sizes that average over 2,000 calories per day. Our food kits will ship quickly and discreetly to your door. Having food storage in your home beats government food lines hands down. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today and prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com 
Do the letters IRS give you anxiety? I'm Dan Pilla. I've defended people from the IRS for more than 40 years. My book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, created the tax resolution industry and is responsible for helping hundreds of thousands of people. It can help you, too. If you're a non-filer or facing IRS enforcement right now, your case is unique. You need real help, not cookie-cutter advice. My clients get my personal attention. Buy my book at danpilla.com and get a free consultation directly with me. That's danpilla.com. Let's start solving your tax problem right now. Hi, I'm Dr. Joel Wallach, the Dead Doctors Don't Lie guy, formerly Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, Air National Guard and Reservist. I'm looking for veterans, active duty military personnel to join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. She needs your skills, courage, and loyalty more than ever. Contact GCNteam.com. Because of the financial and health care collapse, veterans are currently struggling finding jobs. Frustrated looking for a job? Change your tactics. Join the 90 for Life Crusade to save America. Start a health care business with FDI Longevity 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com immediately. We're looking for military specialists who can use a computer and communicate information and execute a battle plan. Join the admirals, Navy SEALs, Marines, pilots, Army officers, military police, sheriffs, police officers, firemen, and first responders already enrolled in the 90 for Life Crusade. Contact GCNteam.com now. FDI Longevity will help you apply your military skills to the task of saving America through health and financial programs. Contact GCNteam.com. Enlist in GCNteam.com and save America. No matter how large or small your digging project may be, no matter how urban or rural, you must always call 811 before any digging project. 811 is our national one-call number, alerting your local utility companies to come out and mark any lines they have near your dig site. So before you do this or this... Make sure you do this. For digging projects big or small, make the call to 811. Brought to you by Common Ground Alliance. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. Okay, Greg, in response to my question, and I don't know if you've ever revealed this or whether anything's happened, anything strange ever happened to you? Disappointingly, not. (laughs) In many ways, I really, really wish they had. I mean, I've seen, you know, anomalous things in the sky sometimes where I've had to look a long, long time to figure out is you know, what is that? Um, that That is an odd thing. It, it, it's an odd shape or something like that. And then usually when I looked long enough, I'd realize I'd been looking at the reflection of light against an airplane or something like that. But I have never had any kind of, you know, sort of anomalous paranormal experiences, despite the fact that I'm absolutely fascinated with them. So it's a great disappointment in many ways. <laughs> Do you talk to lots of people who have had those encounters? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of what I want to do, and and again, this to me is part of what I think you're obligated to do as a historian, at least the way I understand what I do. And that is my job is to try my best to understand and appreciate and acknowledge the kinds of ways in which people experience reality and also talk about their reality and to afford that uh, a goodly measure of respect, 
but also understanding. I can't always put myself completely in somebody else's shoes, right? And we, we never can maybe completely, but I find it and I consider it my job is to make sense of it and understand it as best I can on the terms in which people understand it. And that helps me to I feel like better better make sense of and analyze kind of the whole dynamics about this phenomenon as a social phenomenon. And in that sense, I kind of, in that way, I kind of almost live vicariously through others. Let's go back to that section we started the show with, Greg, the Flying Saucer Clubs. Now, yeah. you know who I am, and yeah. I'll just tell you my story very quickly. My story is, I was 11 years old. My mom and I visited my late brother, Wally, and his first wife, Rose, they lived in an apartment, one-bedroom apartment, on Carroll Street in Brooklyn. Don't even know if the building's up anymore. We're talking about a lot of years. And on his coffee table, he hadn't come home from work yet, but on his coffee table was a book called Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Kehoe. And I looked at the book, and something caught my attention. I started reading it because my mom was talking with... Wally's wife, and they were engaged in chit-chat, and I wasn't interested. So I looked at the book. I started reading the book. And after maybe half an hour or so, I went up to Rose, and I said, can I borrow this book? Is Wally finished with it? And she said, yes, you can borrow it, but you have to return it to the library when it's done. It was a library book. I said, okay. I did return it, by the way, folks. Not that I returned all the books I had, but seriously speaking, I did return that book. I promise you. I have no idea to this day why Wally borrowed that book, why he put it on the coffee table in a place where I could see it if I was there. He never evinced any interest in flying saucers ever mm-hmm. at all. It's almost like he left it for me, figuring mm-hmm. that because I like monsters and science fiction, I dig mm-hmm. this. And I did dig it. And I started reading more and more books kind of like you. I was a bookworm. I was the quiet, overweight bookworm. In fact, I didn't lose the extra weight till I was 18 and kept it off. But I was the quiet guy, and I read this, all these books. Eventually, I met a lot of the people that I read books about. As I said, people like Ray Palmer, people like Richard Shaver. I got involved in the Flying Saucer Club specifically to meet fellow travelers. What did you learn at all? In looking at the saucer clubs, anything interesting about them you can tell us? Well, the first thing is it was to realize that the saucer clubs in so many ways, and Palmer's a great example of this, right? Because they, they, in a sense, they took their cues from the early uh, science fiction clubs, right? And that's where Palmer was cutting his teeth, right, uh, when when all this starts to unfold. And he himself, right, had been involved in these kinds of science fiction, I guess we, we call them now, right, fanzines, right, and all that stuff, and had helped to build some of the uh, these early ideas of a club, right? That, to me, was fascinating, that, that, that the Flying Saucer Clubs were not really the first to do this. Uh, the other thing that I think is kind of interesting is like a kind of a, a, a sociological phenomenon is the way in which the, the saucer club 
becomes something really distinctive and really, really unique. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, you see this already with one of the first somewhat larger organizations, the L.A. organization. What is it? Civilian Saucer Investigation, CSI. Right. Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York. Intelligence. Right. What is that? It's night already. Is it 51 or 52? They're already operating or starting to develop. But what's fascinating is that what's slightly different about the the flying saucer clubs and where they end up going, say, in comparison to this sort of like, you know, fandom groups that were almost the equivalent of book clubs before, is that, of course, these many of them morph into just that investigative organizations. Right. And I don't know if that was the case with you when you got involved was, you know, that there are people who said, well, we could sit around and read and talk about all these stuff, all these things. But what about if we take it upon ourselves to actually dive in and do our own research? And that to me that switch, that turn, that, that's what makes the, them different, something really distinctive and really important. Because in, in the end, I think there's going to be many reasons why this UFO thing as a social phenomenon, you know, has the stability and the resilience that it does over the decades. But one of the things that's going to fuel it is it just that very thing. It's going to it's going to keep it alive is the passion, not just the passion of people, but the dedication to doing the hard work, the activity of, of actually investigating things. That's one of the things that makes it, I think, a really, really distinctive thing as a as a kind of organizational social movement. I really miss the loss of their newsletter. We had Ted Blosher, Lex Mebin, mm-hmm. Isabel Davis. I knew Great them slightly. People. I fascinating. met them. Fascinating. I love reading their stuff. They're, it was they're... just very well written, well researched. They didn't have the wild-eyed viewpoint of the phenomenon that some people did. They looked at it as a scientific mystery. Their articles were well written, and I don't think many other publications since then have been as good. The problem, of course, is like everything else, there was not enough money or incentive to keep it going. But it started in the 50s, as you say, and I guess ended up in the 60s before we had MUFON. Okay? Mm-hmm. And right. I think if you compare their publication with MUFON, it was a hell of a sight better. Greg Agigian joins us, professor of history, who we're looking into the world of the unknown with an emphasis on UFOs with Gene and Greg and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right. We cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. 
What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented Made in America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com. USA Radio News with Tim Berg. Crime is up in big cities across the nation, including New York City. And Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg is going back on what many criticized as soft on crime policies, vowing to now prosecute lawbreakers. Fraternal Order of Police National Vice President Joe Gamaldi joins Fox News and is calling for a stronger response to hold criminals accountable. We need to vehemently prosecute violent criminals, we need to restore the rule of law, and we need to embrace broken windows theories. And along with supporting and funding our police departments, we can accomplish that goal. A five-year-old boy who had been trapped 35 yards underground in a well in Morocco for four days was found dead following a lengthy rescue attempt. You're listening to USA Radio News. A campaign is continuing to educate women about their heart attack risk. Friday was National Wear Red Day, part of the American Heart Association's ongoing campaign to remind women that they are not just at higher risk than men for heart attacks, but in fact, heart attacks are the number one cause of death in women. Dr. Noel Barry Mers of Cedar sinai Hospital telling CBS News. We are doing this because of the rising cardiovascular death rates in women, particularly younger women under the age of 50 particularly women of color. And this started before the pandemic, but it has been exacerbated by the pandemic. And she says that in many cases, women's stress levels directly relate to their heart attack risks, which is why it's often called broken heart syndrome. And for USA Radio News, I'm Chris Barnes. Two-time gold medal winner Sean White is set to retire after the Beijing Olympics. You're listening to USA Radio News. February is Heart Month. Every year for the month of February, to show our appreciation to Extendivite's faithful customers, we have a sale. If you would like to try Extendivite, now is the time to get a few months ahead and really give Extendivite the time to show you how it works. Most of Extendivite's long-term customers wait for this sale to stock up. People and doctors tell us about the unbelievable improvements that they have experienced in their overall health not just the heart. Extendivite wants you to experience the power of these herbs. Get a four-month supply for only $115 for either the capsules or tincture. Please take advantage of this once-per-year sale and get healthy for life. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend your life with Extendivite. This is Be the Merciless. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan. Again, that was a really, really solid introduction. CSI of New York, not the TV, the lousy TV show on crime scene investigators. (laughs) 
with Gary Sinise. It was the original Flying Saucer group, one of the best Flying Saucer clubs of its type. Greg, continue. Yeah. So what was I going to say? I, that I, one of the things I thought, too, that, that, that kind of uh, strikes me about the, the kind of work that, that these organizations were doing was and and maybe this is this gets to the what you were just describing because you know i think for those of us who who you know whatever it is in us that has a passion for reading all of these 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 older older articles and older books and things like that is and, and when we're struck with this idea that that some of that stuff just seems so much maybe better written maybe it's more ambitious maybe there's a kind of vitality to it i i do think that that part of that might be explained by the fact that when you look at say the first decade of the phenomenon following arnold's sighting in 47 so you know up to around the mid 50s that in many ways the whole phenomenon was still kind of up in the air, no pun intended, that in the sense that there was people were still very unclear on how to frame this stuff, how to think about it, how to talk about it, what vocabulary to use, right? It, it was all sort of open-ended, which I think when you look at in history at other moments in time when people are trying to understand new phenomenon, that period of open-endedness um, usually brings about a kind of a creativity, and it and it allows for I think a kind of an uh, uh, a kind of a uh, I, I don't know what the right term is a creativity and an innovativeness that can be a little more difficult when you look later on. You look decades later, and when in fact you know you get down by by the 1980s, a lot of the positions about UFOs have all been staked out, right? Everybody's put their flag down somewhere. And so it, I think, I, I feel like in the, in the 40s and 50s, it was a lot easier to sort of, you know, meander around. And, and in that came, I thought, something kind of creative. So, so Greg, I had a question for you. You know, there's a lot of inter, interwoven things here. One, one I want to ask you was the... Um, Speaking from a cultural standpoint, what were some ancient events or activities that, that are similar to our fascination with UFOs today? Uh, yeah, there's quite a lot, right? Um, so we know that, that dating back, yes, right back to ancient times, um, observers, people chronicled and talked about seeing kind of anomalous things in the heavens. Um, uh, and certainly, I think in retrospect, we tend to associate them now with being probably meteors and comets or odd meteorological events of, the, of one kind or another. Um, so we, there's no question that people looked up into the sky saw things that they thought shouldn't be there or couldn't be there or or couldn't explain in some ways. Um, and these kinds of things were, were oftentimes framed in terms of being uh, great wonders, great marvels of, of one kind or another. You have similar kinds of things being um, said too about kind of terrestrial events. You know, um, uh, there's there's of course a, a long uh, history and legacy of 
people talking about and, and chroniclers in the ancient medieval world talking about, you know, well, if you travel um, to these uh, odd foreign lands, you'll see these strange people with, you know, heads on their bellies and f- seven arms and, you know, and all of these things. You have mariners, who, of course, told stories of st- seeing strange lights or uh, seeing ghostly ships, right, and things like this. So there, there's, there has always been a, 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 a lineage of, of a, a long litany of stories that have come down and been passed down generation after generation of, of people saying, you know, there's something odd, there's something strange, there's something that defies explanation, or at least defies my own explanation. Um, uh, and many of those get framed, as I say, as marvels. And the thing about marvels and wonders was that these are things that are seen as um, expressions of divinity, of the deity, of God, or the gods, if you're dealing with polytheistic universes. Um, and that, to me, I, I see that that is as, as interesting and important, because later on, when you start to talk about um, uh, uh, the 19th century, and you start seeing, and people start talking about seeing strange airships. When you get into the 20th century, and you start talking about UFOs, that sense of wonder, the sense of marvel, the sense that some sort of superhuman power must be behind these things. Um, that never leaves, right? And that becomes, I think, folded into then these more modern stories that we get uh, over time. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the airships because that's a, that's kind of a bridge between the ancient and the modern. And uh, forum um, member Richard Hawkins had a question for you about about the airships, and we know mm-hmm. we know they kind of had a. Um, there was a lot of public interest. I mean, it probably it wasn't organized like UFOs today. But uh, he says the um, it, the part of this question in particular was that you know they were describing something technological that was ahead of what actually could be built. But you know they didn't know what it was, and you know if it's from an inventor. So can you uh, can you talk a little bit about that and the way they were perceived and discussed? Yeah. So I've I've seen. Uh, narratives and chronicles and testimony of of claims of seeing um, these these airships as early as the 1830s. Um, uh, but the, probably the most famous event of the, of the 19th century, at least, was in 1896 and 1897, and this this sort of wave of of supposed sightings of airships that starts out in the West Coast, out in California, um, sort of tails off for a while and then reappears in early 1897 and then started to play out in other parts of the United States. Um, yeah, and what's kind of fascinating to me about, about the strange airship sightings is one is, first of all, what people describe tended to be and what what gets reported on um, tend to be um, things that are associated with sort of developing technologies or at the very least technologies that people um, 
uh, can imagine as coming down the pike at some point. And so typically the airships get described as as having these lights, right? They, they may be at times talked about as being fueled by steam engines or something like that. Sometimes they actually look like actual, you know, the kinds of ships you would see on the sea. Um, uh, that's one of the things that's interesting. The other is you just mentioned, Kurt, was the the, the, the idea that, by and large, um, people believe the, the, that, the, that the, the figures behind these airships were these kind of eccentric, in, inventive tinkerers, right, who, who had come up with these devices. And, and in, many case, in some cases, you actually have the press reporting that some guy coming forward or his lawyer coming forward and say, I'm the guy who's behind this. I'm the one who built it and I'm going to show you. Or if you give me this much money, I'll, I'll share it with you, these kinds of things. Now, if you can't get enough of Greg Aguinian, and we can't, he'll also appear on this weekend's edition of After the Paracast which is part of the Paracast Plus package. For more information, check out theparacast.plus. Once again, that's theparacast.plus. There you get the latest low prices, plus quick, quick sign-up instructions. You can get yourself set up as a member of the Paracast Plus in, say, 30 seconds to a minute or so. Let's do our What's break that? with Greg gotcha. and Gene and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> For listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Has your body ever gone low blood sugar feeling weak, shaky, knowing you better eat something fast? We all know high blood sugar can lead to many metabolic problems. At GCNteam.com, we have a healthy blood sugar pack, focusing on the structure and function of stable blood sugar. Find us at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Nothing feels worse than unstable blood sugar. Call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. Silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at Silverlungs.com. That's Silverlungs.com. Hey folks, Tom D. for ParanormalDate.com. 
Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, ghosts, zombies, UFOs, crop circles, and more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you, people who seek a little more than the other dating services offer. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com, and if you decide you like it and you want to connect with others, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. So many people want to share their experiences with the paranormal, the afterlife, the unusual, and this is the place to meet and share common interests with those of like minds. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word GEORGE and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like. We are GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. We've got listeners, lots of them. Around the world, around the clock, our listeners do what listeners do. They listen. And you know what listeners got? Needs. Needs for your products, your services, and money to buy those needs. With our network of over 1,000 radio stations, streaming on the web, and our satellite transmissions, we're reaching our listeners with quality conservative programming. But there's something our listeners don't have. Your offer to meet their needs. Any business needs buyers. But if our listeners don't hear your message, they're still going to buy what they need. Just not from your business. So let's fix this. Tell us about your business. Then let our super creative department go to work to craft just the right message for our GCN listeners. Get started today with GCN, the Genesis Communications Network. Just shoot us an email. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast. Let me tell you what, you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Okay, so Greg Agigian is telling us about the history of the airship reports, especially in 1896 and 1897, all around that time. But before we go back to the conversation... Some of these were published in newspapers, and there's a feeling that those stories were made up by the publisher or the editor to get higher circulation. So maybe you can address that before we go back to the claims. Right. It's a serious uh, line of questioning, right? The extent to which these things can be trusted, especially once this uh, starts to develop a a bit of a head of steam in the press. And the fact that all of these things get clustered around the same kinds of areas and regions, right? It does seem to be uh, reasonable to suspect that at least in some, if not many of the cases, what you're dealing with is a kind of copycat phenomenon of the publishers, right? Keeping up with the Joneses, making sure you sell newspapers. A colleague of mine who has written on the history of newspapers in, in 19th century America, a good rule of thumb to know whether you should maybe trust an article from that period or not in terms of its reporting is to look for specificity. He said more specificity tends to lend it some measure of credence. If it tends to be vague, you may well suspect it was invented or or concocted in some ways. There's no question that the artist renditions, and there's many of them, you can see them online when you Google, the artist renditions tended to be fairly fanciful. There's pretty good evidence to indicate that artist renditions of a lot of things 
in 19th century newspapers were really quite quite fictional and, and fanciful in that regard. In other words, this was the real fake news. This is what not, fake news was about. Not the fake fake news, but the real fake news. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, to me, the thing, though, that's really interesting is, again, to see in the way this stuff was discussed and talked about is that by and large, there's some exceptions, but by and large, this stuff wasn't associated with any kind of panic. It wasn't framed by the newspapers and there doesn't seem to be a lot of I mean, there's some stories here and there that seem to talk about people being a little uh, caught off guard or, or maybe a little panicky. But but by and large, that sort of wave didn't seem to be associated with and tied into any kind of fear, mass fear. That's going to change like by a, around a decade later. There's another big wave that starts taking place, particularly overseas in England. In 1909, there's another one in 1912, there's another one in 1914. And when you look there, it's a really different story. There you have a set of a series of different waves of sightings that now seem to be, of course, folded into fears about um, German invasion. The German Navy was building up. Uh, by that time, uh, Count Zeppelin had, had developed his Zeppelins, and there are people actively talking in the English press and in the English parliament by 1912, at least, if not farther back, talking about the fact that one of the things we've got to concern ourselves with is um, a Zeppelin attack. With the next war. And so by that time and in that environment, the narrative is a very different narrative. It's these things are scary, they're sinister, and they seem to be a portent of something either that is happening right then and there or is soon to come. And we've got to worry about those nasty Germans uh, across the channel. I have a quick question, and Kurt will probably have others. Do you think, looking at all these reports from the 19th century, the early 20th century, there was any reality to any of them? There doesn't seem to be, from what I can see. Uh, and, and in part, that is a reflection of what other sources from the time period are talking about. So there doesn't seem to be any evidence that, for instance, in 1909, uh, dirigibles were going over areas in England and scouting things and were landing. Uh, or in 1912, you know, that uh, the dirigibles financed by the German government were landing and Germans were getting out and sort of mapping or taking a look and, and doing surveillance. There doesn't seem to be any evidence of anything like that taking place. Now, did people maybe see something, see something odd? Did that, that may well be. It's very hard to say to my mind on the basis of the source material we have. And certainly I think when you talk about 1912 and especially 1914, the early days of the war, even even uh, the people who investigated these cases, like the police, like the like um, civilian government organizations, uh, who went in to look into some of the claims that, for instance, there were claims in 1914 that people said, oh yeah, I happened upon an aerodrome where um, a bunch of Germans were holed up and had their 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 zeppelins there and were were all armed and you know they, they the police went out there never found anything could never see anything that was there so there seems to be good reason to suspect that a lot of this had to do with with a lot of the panic justified panic mind you but the panic that that ordinary people had in light of the fact that that war was coming. 
Okay, well, this is this is sort of related to what Gene just asked. Um, from a perspective of a historian, what UFO events? Well, and I guess before I sh- I should give us some introduction. So, so most most events throughout history have conflicting with, uh, witness testimony, ambiguous details, and then you know you get to the UFO topic, and we've got that in spades. There's just so many uncertain details. But what what UFO events could be looked at? you know, as a historical event, and what could you, what could you say about them? Yeah, right. You're so right, Kurt. (laughs) I will tell you, when I got into this, I knew it would be, it would be complicated. It would be, it would be challenging. I maybe underestimated how challenging it would be for exactly what the reason you just talked about. Um, So many conflicting perspectives on things. Um, uh, oftentimes people, you know, making claims that are based on second, third, fourth, fifth hand rumor, um, people's, um, um, uh, uh, testimony and testimonials about what happened changing over time, depending on the context. Um, and oftentimes it's very difficult to know where actually a, a report or a story actually ever began. And that's one of the things I've been trying really, really hard to do when I go on and investigate a specific incident. I try to find out when and where did it begin. It can be oftentimes almost impossible to do. Um, I, I've, one of the things, for instance, I've, I've looked at and I'm thinking of in, in this regard is something like the – the, the wave of sightings of 1973, right? 1973 uh, brought about a considerable uh, number of sightings and reports um, uh, in, in the United States. The, the core of it or the center of it seemed to have been the American Southeast, um, but it expands beyond that. Um, later on, people like Jacques Vallée will say that then uh, later on in the year, as you get closer towards, I guess, November and December, the, the waves started to be experienced overseas in Europe, particularly in France. Um, uh, it's an interesting case because to me, waves are, are a, a kind of a, a, a slippery term, right? What do we mean when we talk about a, a UFO wave? We know what people mean in ufology by it, right? These, these uh, number of sightings over a, 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 f- a f- relative lengthier period of time that covers a certain area that usually is more than just, say, one town or, or, or one, one rural area, right? It needs to be a little more expansive than that. And the 1973 wave is is um, interesting because by then, right, the government has gotten out of looking and investigating UFOs. So where's the data coming from? Where do we know, uh, come to find out about the wave? Well, this is where I approach it as an historian. I approach it by saying what I'm interested in is not you, the UFOs per se, because I don't know that I can say anything about them. What I can talk about are the UFO reports. And the UFO reports come from basically two sources. They come from local newspapers and they come from UFO organizations. And this is where the, uh, the material is coming from. And so the people who are talking about a wave are these 
newspapers and magazines on one hand and UFO organizations and investigators on the other, the two seem to be um, lockstep in in some measure, though they're going to be more skeptical newspapers here. Um, So really the question then becomes, you know, how do we explain how this stuff gets framed and talked about as a wave? What is it that's, 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 that, that is fueling that? And who, if anybody, is playing a role in continuing to sort of talk about it in that fashion? Let's do a yeah, break sure. with Greg, Gene, and Kirk. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork, you know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big, bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Greg Agigian is talking to us here about the 1973 UFO wave, the possible UFO flap conditions. I lived through that. Mm. I remember I was working at a radio station in southeast Pennsylvania, near the Mason-Dixon line, Mm. and I read a report on the wire services about a flying saucer sighting near Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, like a 10, 15-minute drive from where I was working. And that's where things sort of began. But as you see, it's around the country. And I guess the question that arises from what you told us in the last segment is, 
is this a publicity flap where the coverage breeds the interest and the willingness of other people to report something? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, and I guess by saying that, when, when we say something like that, I don't think one can say simply that, aha, that explains it. Well, that's all it is. I mean, I know that that will become sort of the argument of a kind of classical debunking position. And it may be, it, it, it may have its own validity, but, but it seems to me that what, what it really says is really a couple things. First of all, it's kind of a reminder. It's kind of a warning for all of us who want to look into these things that we always have to sort of step carefully, ask ourselves questions about sources of information. That's what you always want to do when you're when you're doing any sort of serious, sober minded research. So I think that's one of the the important sort of takeaways from that. But I think for me, it's it's less that I'm convinced that people were seeing things that people were um, there were objects or things that were capturing people's attention. But that superimposed on top of that is the conversation, is the discussion. I think in many ways you can't separate them out. You, you couldn't separate it out at the time if, if you're alive at that time. I was alive at that time as well. And you can't separate those things out. So when we, when we study these things, I think it's incumbent upon us to actually take all of those seriously and to see them all as intimately bound up in, in one another. It's messy. It makes getting to the heart of the truth of the matter, if that's what you're interested in, very, very difficult. That, to me, is what, what human history is. It's, it's messy. <laughs> and it's one of the things that makes us absolutely marvelous, wonderful, strange creatures. <laughs> that brings to mind something. I've, I've compared ufology sometimes to pro wrestling and that you know, there are a lot of people attracted to the sensational aspects and the drama. And I just thought of another sports comparison. It's like, okay, so maybe, you know, the actual UFO events, whatever they are, that's like the play on the field in a football game. And then ufology is like the tailgate parties, the fans with the paint and, you know, with horned helmets and painted faces and things. And, you know, there's, but there's a whole circus that's attached and the barriers between them are pretty thin or sometimes non-existent. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're quite right. And, and you know, I think there's also other aspects, too. You could also say that, that ufology and, and many ufologists also are the equivalent of, like, sports analysts, right? They go over the games that have been played and sort of dissected. And, you know, they probably have certain home teams they root for. And there's different camps about whether uh, Jimmy Garoppolo is a good quarterback or a lousy quarterback, right? And these kinds of things. And, and I guess that gets at something. And I don't know. I mean, if if I can shoot a question actually to you, Kurt, because I know you know you've done you do so much in this area that's absolutely fascinating. I'm a, I'm an avid fan of of the saucers that time forgot and blue blurry lines. But I mean, one of the things I've talked about with journalists who are interested in asking me about ufology and stuff, and 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 I've said, you know, I'm not sure I always understand this, but. It seems to me uh, implied in what you were saying was that, you know, historically, so many people have been involved in ufology. Um, it 
will we'll reflect on this very fact. Jim Mosley used to talk about all the time how acrimonious, right? How angry people can get, how upset people can get with one another within the community, but also with outsiders. What do you think is behind that? Because I think it's one of the criticisms that's often lodged at ufology is that it can be sometimes a pretty rough and tumble world. And some people are and I sometimes ask myself a question. Why is it? Why is it like that? You know, that's an aspect of, of the saucer clubs that we kind of missed discussing is the fact that they were so territorial. And, you know, part of it is is some ego. Uh, I think another thing was, was a shortage of material. Uh, the I know APRO and MUFON in the 70s had these huge feuds basically over over cases. And, you know, sometimes like the uh, APRO had that Travis Walton case and then MUFON kind of said, well, then that's not very good. And then, you know, uh, the uh, when the Cash Lantern case came up, there was sort of a turf battle over that, and APRO kind of said, "Well, MUFON can have that because we have guys in Houston that's close that are close to it." But in the in print, they just savaged each other and made accusations like, "Well, MUFON has government connections," and mm. you know, and so there was a, it. It was really you know it was kind of a feud thing, and I think um, uh, Gene has talked before when. Uh, he visited Richard Hall at NICAP and was unwelcome there because he didn't like the viewpoint of Saucer News. Mm. So, I, Gene, I, I know you yeah, saw some of this firsthand. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that, well, that, you know, it was very interesting that visit. This goes back to 1965. And I had been to NICAP headquarters earlier. In 1965, we're talking about me being 20 years old. I'm an old guy. And I went to NICAP headquarters innocently with some friends, a guy from Brooklyn, Marty Salk, and Rick Hilberg, and Alan Greenfield. Okay, the previous day we met Major Kehoe at his home in Luray, Virginia. And he seemed mm-hmm. like a pleasant guy and everything. I later learned that he was a very sloppy manager. Richard Hall was basically running NICAP. Next mm-hmm. day I go in there to the headquarters, and this is the cultural aspect about NICAP headquarters, okay? It was located on DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. Not the newest office building, but a small suite of offices, workable. If you look at the film, The Day the Earth Stood Still, the scene where Klaatu is shot down by the authorities, it was very much in that area. Mm. Now, Mm. isn't that culturally strange (laughs) okay so we go up to the headquarters knock on the door richard hall looks at me and points his finger shaking at me i'm speaking literally said you're not welcome here and then this started a whole movement so i told jim mosley about it but i also called ray palmer because i had interviewed him a couple of years earlier and i asked him what he thought we should do because he was following the UFO culture and Flying Saucers magazine. I didn't realize naively then what an operator Palmer was, but let's forget about that. He wrote an article in Flying Saucers magazine called No Investigations Can Actually Proceed, which stands for NICAP, Major Kyo's organization. <laughs> Jim Mosey would say to me, okay, Hall must fall. Let's start this movement. (laughs) Hall must fall. By the way, Richard Hall did eventually leave NICAP, not because of anything we did, but a lot of people did clamor for that, saying you should not treat eager teens 
young adults, men, you know, young men. You shouldn't treat them in a nasty fashion because one of them works for some guy in New Jersey you don't agree with. Mm. Now, 10 years later, I'm at a UFO convention in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And there's Richard Hall. And we looked at each other. He knew who I was. We shook hands. That was it. The Mm. debate was over. We're 10 years older now. And we're cool. We're in the same range. In fact, the Mm. sad thing about it, and we'll go into more of this discussion in the next segment, the sad thing about all of it is that we never got a chance to interview Richard Hall on the Paracast because he died a few years after the show debuted, and we couldn't get a hold of him. We tried John Keel, and that didn't work either, but that's another story. Greg Agigian joining us, professor of history, looking into the world of the paranormal, an emphasis on UFOs with Gene and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Are you ready to retire? Inflation is picking up, the markets are volatile, and the dream of a comfortable retirement is harder to attain than ever before. The stock market goes up and down is beyond your control. But you're at a point in your life where you can't afford to make big financial mistakes. I'm Al Iberoa, founder of Knight Strategic Wealth. Our investment strategy allows you to go up with the stock market, lock in your gains, and when the stock market goes down, your investment won't lose a dime. This works for your investments, savings at a brokerage firm, or even money at a bank. It's simple, it's safe, and that's why savvy investors work with us. Want to learn more? Text FREE to 833-898-0500, and we'll send our retirement readiness kit directly to your phone right now. If you want to help build a retirement portfolio that will go up with the market and literally never lose money, get our retirement readiness kit today and see how this strategy can help secure your future. Text FREE to 833-898-0500. Text FREE to 833-898-0500. G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at teamg'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at teamg'day.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your Longevity business. Teamg'day.com. Teamg'day.com. Hi, Peter Vaccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. 
people who are interested in the strange, the unusual, mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, and the afterlife, and so much more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you, people seeking a viable alternative to the other dating services. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com, and if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more, and this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com, ParanormalDate.com, and use the code GEORGE if you decide to connect with someone you like. No other network provides the level of customer service we do. When it comes to radio advertising, we are your one-stop shop. And no matter how big or small your business is, we can help. Email us at advertise at GCNlive.com and an experienced advertising executive will help you take the first step towards driving more customers to your business or website. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So, as you were saying, Greg, UFO clubs would fight amongst each other, like even APRO and NICAP. There'd be an mm-hmm. argument, how close does Major Kehoe allow a UFO to get? Because they were reluctant to deal with abduction cases, although mm-hmm. they eventually covered the one regarding the hills. Go ahead, Greg. Right, right. What both of you say is, I think, quite interesting, right, is this territoriality here. And you're quite right. You know, the, the two big guns by the 1960s, at least in the United States, right, are APRO and, and NICAP. And of course, they, they they kind of understood themselves, given you know what the Lorenzans thought about what they were up to at APRO and what Kehoe had in mind for NICAP. They they kind of had different missions, right? I mean, Kehoe understands kind of the the one of the key, or if not the primary mission, is is what I guess we today would call disclosure, right? And you know, APRO saw itself as well. We're we're doing investigations and Coral Lorenzen, as you well know, thought, thought, you know, kept telling Kehoe, I don't know why you're interested in what the, the military coming clean. They don't know anything. They're just a bunch of bumbling idiots. But that, that to me, get, to get back to what I had originally been asking about, sort of begs the question. You know, you've got two major organizations. Um, there were plenty of people, right? I don't know if that was the case with Eugene or people you knew, but I know there were people who were members of both organizations and read both news bulletins, you know, religiously at the time. They have two different sets of kind of interests and missions. How is it that you can't just get on with one another and cooperate, right? Why territoriality when, in fact, you know, you've got the the pie is big <laughs> and there's a lot of different ways to go. So that, like I say, I, I continue to sort of uh, try to still get a better understanding for how it is that this fractiousness that seems to be historically endemic in so many instances 
how it is that it's there and why it manifests itself and why it's been so perpetually at times difficult to sort of overcome. Well, let me just tell you one more thing here, and that is Jim Mosley and Richard Hall kind of hated each other. And Jim was very innocent about it. He'd like to cover both sides, although there were other aspects to his personality that you probably know. So one time Jim calls Richard Hall to maybe just get an update on what NICAP was working on. And Hall blurts out, are you taping this conversation? Now, those of us who knew Jim Mosley then and later on in life know that he was the ultimate Luddite. He ultimately switched from a manual typewriter to an electric typewriter. He never bought a personal computer, didn't have a cell phone, didn't have an answering machine. And we're talking about a guy who lived into the early part of the second decade of the 21st century. Never had those things. So Hall's saying, are you taping this? And Jim says, of course not. I don't even have a tape recorder. And eventually words were exchanged and they hung up on each other. So that was Jim Mosley and Richard Hall. So that was part of, shall we say, the predecessor to my meeting Hall, Mm. him knowing that I was doing some work with Jim Mosley and him dismissing me outright because of that. So that was part of it right there. And that was unfortunate. But the other thing about Jim Mosley and something that he admitted on the Paracast the times he appeared, he and his friend Gray Barker created Mm -hmm. a fake feud. Mm -hmm. Okay, they would attack (laughs) each other in print just to keep the action going. Now, in a sense, Ray Palmer would do things like that in a different way. He'd write controversial articles to get reader reaction. So not only were there the territorial disputes, natural territorial disputes mm-hmm. by the canines in the UFO field, we had the fake ones. Jim Mosley is one of the people, probably the person I most wish I could have met. I, I began this project, you know, uh, not that long ago in, 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 in historical terms. Right. So he was gone by then. But I, I wish I could have met him. I love reading his stuff now. It's absolutely fascinating and funny and very funny as well. I remember days in, days out where I'd hang out at Jim's place. He was drinking VAT 69 ale or some other kind of whiskey. I don't know anything about alcohol. And maybe later on smoking a joint. And he'd go on and talk. And he showed me a lot of stuff about his life. I learned very much about his life where he'd show the letters that his father, who was a very right-wing military officer and official in the army, nearly anti-Semitic, certainly Mm -hmm. close to being a Nazi. And he wanted Jim's mom, because they had separated at this point, to send Jim off to military school. Now imagine Jim Mosley at military school. I mean, if you know anything about his personality, this would be outrageous. He was one of the first two guests we had on the PowerCast when we started the show. Because he was just so fascinating. And even a couple of months before he died, we had him on the show. And he was a guy in his early 80s. And he was still Jim Mosley. <laughs> That's great. So I got to know him a little bit. I heard him on the show. Uh, I wrote to him. And, you know, we had a, had a bunch of phone calls. And he just had his involvement in the field was incredible. He he knew everyone. You know, later on, he was hosting conventions and through his newsletter. He was so well connected and he saw so much history and had a lot of 
the personal scoop, you know, the backstage drama. He was aware of that. So, you know, it's uh, I think, uh, you know, people need to need to take a look into some of his work, you know, his book and uh, become more familiar with it. Oh, changing gears a little bit. So so one thing that that I'd like to talk about was modern audiences can only relate to the Nimitz case as having a big impact in the media and culturally. But there used to be a lot of those. And, and one of the big ones that was kind of a game changer was in the 60s with the, the Barney and Betty Hill case, because that that changed. You know, we'd heard about contactees before, but then this was a story of abduction. This was really big in, in magazines and newspapers. And Greg, can you tell us how that reached the mainstream public? Yeah, yeah. And, and June was you were talking earlier in our conversation about the the, the, the book that, that that caught your your attention early on. For me, probably the the the, the really formative or that that you know you know you know oomph movement <laughs> moment in my life about UFOs came when I read the Interrupted Journey uh, in ni- that nineteen sixty six. I guess it was published uh, by the journalist John Fuller about the about the hills. And about their 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 case of alien abduction, right? Uh, you know, it, it it the the events that take place take place, you know, five years earlier in 1961. So it only really kind of gets any full public attention, um, really, when that when that book comes out and does fairly well. Though I guess there were some articles. Uh, that preceded that. And of course, it, they, they were beginning to be known about within the UFO communities. Um, Let's do our the, break here. We'll yeah. talk about that. Barney and Betty Hill and lots of other things from the 60s. I remember the 60s. <laughs> and I can't say where my mind was at. That's another story. Anyway, Gene, Greg, and Kurt, you're in the Paracast. <laughs> for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. SilverLungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at SilverLungs.com. That's SilverLungs.com. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla. I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com. USA Radio News with Tim Berg. One of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives is now in custody after being captured in Mexico. 48-year-old Octaviano Juarez Coro had been on the run since Memorial Day 2006 after allegedly shooting two people and wounding three others at a Milwaukee picnic, according to the FBI. The FBI adding the alleged shooter to their list in 2021 
and they were able to track him down last week in Guadalajara, Mexico. He now faces multiple charges, including first-degree intentional homicide. Several units of American troops being deployed to Eastern Europe are now on the ground in Poland and Germany. President Biden ordering the move in response to a threat of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Find us online at usaradio.com. This is USA Radio News. As the Olympics continue in Beijing, a protest taking place in Washington, D.C. on Saturday afternoon across from the White House, a group of Uyghurs, an ethnic minority native to northwest China, denounced the Games. China is accused of committing genocide against the Muslim Uyghurs, and this speaker compared the situation to what happened in Germany in the 1930s. The lack of international investigation will only embolden China to continue its brutal attempts to eradicate the Uyghurs, just like how Hitler started his Holocaust of the Jews following the 1936 Berlin Olympics. The United States led a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics by several countries in protest of China's record of human rights violations. Republican Senator from Florida Marco Rubio saying he's not watching the Olympics as a protest. USA Radio News. Now with orders to stay at home, public health concerns, the reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses. Your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day. But supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at immunesupportnow.com. That's immunesupportnow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. This is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. So about the hills, I think that was one of the few abductee cases that NICAP allowed to be covered in their pages. Go on, Greg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the thing that's interesting about that from my standpoint is because, um, you know, one thread, one current, of course, in the whole history of the UFO phenomenon is the whole um, phenomenon and claims of contact with aliens here on Earth. Certainly didn't begin with uh, the hills. There, obviously, there'd been all these folks, the contactees, well before that in the 1950s. Um, but but what's intriguing is, of course, the hills are, are widely understood or thought or seen as the beginning of a kind of change, a, a radical change in how that alien contact, that encounter sort of plays out. They're the beginning of this idea of the alien abduction, right? The alien abduction phenomenon. What's interesting for me from, again, social historical perspective is that, of course, 
if we make this argument that the media is responsible for generating stories alone, that media, you know, attention basically promotes uh, more sightings, more claims that are along similar lines, and people mimic these things. There's a sort of mimicking effect. The interesting thing to me about the, the Hills is it is a, a case that gets a lot of publicity. Um, years later, it's turned into a film. But you don't, in fact, have this kind of unfolding sort of serious, serial sort of phenomenon of, of waves of claims by people saying they were abducted over the course of the late 60s and the 1970s. Yes, there are cases, and they're going to get publicity. The Pascagoula case in 73 is is going to be one, though it's a it's very different in terms of how it's described than, than the Hills. So you really don't see the explosion of the, the alien abduction claims until you get really into the 80s and, and then the 90s. So there is, in fact, this, this kind of period of, again, from a, from a larger popular cultural viewpoint, of a kind of a gap. And so it seems to me you can't just simply, it, it seems to me a good example where we have to say, we can't just say, Media, you know, a media sensation translates into people going to mimic these things. It clearly isn't that simple. So that's one of the things I find fascinating about the consequences uh, of the Hills case. When you when you talk about the the consequences and maybe imitation, so there's been some uh, speculation that uh, a decade or so later, when there was a television movie made, that that might have influenced Travis Walton. You know, so then we have uh, that was in 1975. And so there were there were some things happening then. Right. Right. And that's that becomes sort of uh, one of the and we see we hear similar things right about when uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind comes out, maybe less so about E.T., but but certainly uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the Spielberg movie comes out. And I don't know, I I, I the, the, I hear this a lot, the, these, these questions again about do, do, again, do films, do uh, popular books, do they have this kind of echo effect, if you will? I think that from my standpoint, I think the jury is still out whether or not these things necessarily translate into a kind of an uptick of sightings or an uptick of, of claims. It seems to me you need other things to be lined up to make that happen. Um, and I think one of the things that if you say, look backward and forward with regard to the Hills case, backward in terms of talking about what we've been just talking about before about these UFO organizations and groups and clubs that had formed in the 50s who helped sort of keep the momentum going in the interest in UFOs. Um, one of the things that the, the Hills kind of lacked were was that very kind of thing, a kind of a, an easy uh, or at least a, a kind of a sustained advocacy for this sort of claim. It was an unusual claim for its time, right? And that's part of what made it stand out was it was so unusual, relatively speaking, that what 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 that's going to change, right? Because by the time you start to get into the late 70s, Right. You get, I guess, the Betty Andreessen case is going to be the later part of the 70s. Then you're going to get into the Bud Hopkins, the David Jacobs in the 80s. And then what you're going to have is actually 
figures who are going to see it as their mission to really make sure this stuff gets attention, it stays in stays in, in, in focus on center stage as much as possible, both within the UFO community and then in popular culture as well. And, and that seems to be another dimension of this that I think comes out when you start to think about how these things are interrelated or at least compared to other things in the history of the UFO phenomenon. Did you look at all at the connection with the movie The Day the Earth Stood Still in 1951 and some of the early contact claims? You know, I, I, I have. I've thought about it and, and, and looked at it. I, you know, it, it seems to me that, that I, I don't know that, I'll put it this way, I don't know that the film necessarily influenced um, uh, the, those major figures who were a part of the contactee community, George Adamski being probably the most notable case, but all, all the others. Rather, the way I kind of understand it or the way I see it is they're both that, that the contactees, so many of them expressing kind of new age philosophy, steeped in certain kinds of forms of mysticism and things like that, oftentimes theosophy, that the film and the filmmakers and those contactees were both, in fact, responding to similar kinds of things at the same time. So that they're, they're simultaneously or they're w working in tandem parallel with one another rather than necessarily one influencing the other. Um, now, George Adamski, as an example, used the claim of meeting the silvery clad alien in the desert to advance his beliefs. It was mm -hmm. just a mechanism. It was a way going through the back door, as he once admitted to one of his followers. Right. Yeah. I mean, his, his um, explanations could change at different times and different settings, right? Um, yeah. I mean, it, it does seem to me the evidence shows that he saw flying saucers as a useful platform to uh, help express his his great belief in in what had been a fairly lo long part or a lengthy part of his life, right? His his engagement and his commitment to uh, philosophies that were metaphysical in nature, right? Um, and so he seems to have been just finding this to be a kind of a ready-made opportunity for him. And there are other people, by the way, who, who seem to be like that. Um, operating at the time, many of the contactees, but you can look in, in foreign countries. If you look in a place like uh, Germany, there's a, there's a fellow by the name of Karl Veit, who ends up being the major figure in, in the kind of looming figure in German ufology for decades over there. Very similar story, a guy who, who was committed to kind of a form of Christian mysticism um, and had always been engaged in it, been engaged with it with his father. And then when the flying saucer phenomenon happens, he sees in it um, something deeply meaningful, as he puts it, as, as something. And he himself, he says, sees a flying saucer and sees this as something that can be easily understood within the framework of this other kind of Christ, Christian mystical vision uh, that he had already had uh, available to him at the time. So a lot of this stuff involves a kind of a, a going back and forth between these sort of new developments that now get seen through the through the lens, right, of these of these religious and devotional um, attitudes that a lot of people had. We have Greg Agigin.
He is a professor of history, exploring the unknown. And we're talking now about the early contactees, and I'm going to have a question in our next segment about one specific contactee whose story was itself a little bit different with Gene and Greg and Kurt in The Paracast. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there's The Coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream, a dream that turns out to be a nightmare because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at rockoids.com. That's rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. No matter if supply lines are down, product deliveries are slow, and that most everything costs more these days, you still have neck and shoulder pain, right? Good news. Sunny Bay has new products that target neck and shoulder pain. Products that are in stock now, ready to ship anywhere now. Like our extra long neck heating pads. They provide soothing relief to painful sore necks and backs. You can heat them in a microwave oven, and they come in a variety of colors and patterns. And for stress relief, get our lavender-scented hands-free neck wraps or maybe you need one of our smaller lower back wraps great for seniors again there's no shipping delays from sunny bay find our new products on amazon walmart etsy and sunny-bay.com just search for sunny bay neck wraps all our products are great for men or women are reusable and easy to clean remember just search for sunny bay neck wraps order now because stock is high and shipping is fast from sunny bay You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork, you know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big, bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-932-5140. 800-932-5140. 800-932-5140. That's 800-932-5140. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? 92 
$1,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how'd it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes, take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now 800-503-8625-800-503-8625-800-503-8625 hi it's grant cameron from presidentialufo.com you're listening to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio So, Greg, have you explored the tale of sign painter Howard Menger from Highbridge, New Jersey? A little bit, a little bit about him. I have. He's not been kind of a a, a, a centerpiece of my stuff, and partly because I, I kind of have. He kind of enters in after a lot of the other folks have chimed in, right? When when does he start? Is he late fifties that he starts to get sort of exposed public exposure? Right. And it's more interesting there, too. We met him in the mid-60s, Jim Mosley and I. Now, if you think Jim Mosley was as far from being a fan of contactees as anyone, okay? In fact, for a while, he adopted the so-called Earth theory, where UFOs were secret weapons. And that was based on something that Dr. D, Leon Davidson, had told him. But that's another story. Let's talk about Howard Manger. Howard Manger had gone on an early radio show, the pioneer paranormal show, Long John Nebel. And for a brief time, Nebel had a TV show, but his kind of chatter did not translate to television. He was best with long form Mm. radio. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like I have a face for radio, so I understand about this. (laughs) Okay. So we're not going to say anything about my guests because Greg and Kurt would do fine. In any case, one day Manger calls Jim because he had a published phone number for Saucer News headquarters at 303 Fifth Avenue, New York, between 5th and Madison. I remember it well. And he said he'd like to talk with Jim about something. Howard Menger calling Jim Mosley. What's going on? This is after he appeared on Long John Nebel's TV show, where mm. Long John expected him to recite his spiel about meeting handsome aliens this time he's saying you know i'm not so sure that's what's going on of course long john did not like to be surprised on the radio he wanted (laughs) everything to be controlled on tv he was even less apt to take it and he had a pretty nasty temper let's go to howard manger calling jim mosley so we meet him at a diner across the street from the saucer news office and manger says he thinks that maybe he was an unwilling or unknowing participant in some kind of government experiment, that the aliens he met were government agents, and he was brought into it. Now, one thing about Mancher's claims, some of his pictures of UFOs were paintings, some of which 
duplicated the scene of the flying saucer taking off in the day the Earth stood still. You compare mm. the two, they're near identical. Okay, so he's talking about possibly being the victim of a government experiment. Did you ever see any claims like that in the contactee field going back to these years? Government involvement. I don't know. Does, did, did Dan Fry ever go down that route? I don't Nick Redfern it. suggested that Orfeo Angelucci might have. There's a scene where he meets, I guess, one of his E.T. contacts alleged in a diner, and he takes yeah. this pill, and suddenly he yeah. went into a dream to quote a certain song. Yeah, yeah. Nobody ever, that you know, of the major figures, right? Nobody ever, if they did go down that route, it was never a big part of the message, right? Because the message was always about what our space brothers and sisters had in store for us, right? That was... That was always the message. But no, I don't I don't recall anybody specifically doing that. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Menger and his wife later moved to Florida, where he started building UFO models, mm-hmm. I guess, with the suggestion that someday he'd invent an actual flying saucer. He gave up the story or didn't talk about the story of possibly being the victim. But then let's move away from that. We were going into the changes in the contactee movement where now it's the abductions. We have the Hills. We go to the 80s. Of course, Whitley Strieber being an example. An interesting thing to look at is, you know, culturally is that, you know, when Steven Spielberg made Jaws and his next movie, they were expecting it to be another horrifying movie, you know, and something... And he pulled a switch on us. All the all the all the advertising for Close Encounters of the Third Kind was you know it was very ominous. You know, watch the skies and it's very mm. dark. But then you know his aliens turned out to be good guys, and you know there was a little bit of that contacting message. You know, with this benevolent mm. aliens that was worked into that. You know, the, although the aliens themselves they were closer to what we think of the, the Greys. That was a switch. Yeah, I mean, and that kind of gets at a point that I've I've often remark on, which is the extent to which there there has often been at times this kind of disconnect between what's going on within the, the, the UFO communities, the people who are, you know, talking about this stuff and, and getting together at conferences and and writing about this in, in UFO periodicals and those kind, and doing investigations. And then Hollywood on the other. I mean, if, if you think about the 50s, right, uh, the day the earth stood still is really anomalous, right, in terms of portraying aliens. Aliens, mostly in the 1950s films, are portrayed as you know, invaders. They're they're invading us. They're here to take over and conquer us, and they're dangerous and they're menacing. But that wasn't, as we've just been talking about, that really was not the message of most alien contact stories and claims, and certainly the ones that were probably the more highly publicized ones. That was far from what was being claimed by people like Adamski and Bethurum and people like that. Then you get to what you're just talking about, Kurt. You get into the 70s and 80s, and you're quite right. By then, we start hearing more stories of, of if the aliens aren't malevolent, 
then the, the very least they're kind of cold and unfeeling and 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 frightening and you're right spielberg presents us with et i mean uh with uh, uh, close encounters and and et them is the same way and aliens you're quite right they're awe-inspiring the experience of meeting them and in fact the way they seem to call people forth operates on almost a spiritual level there's a and that final scene right is is really one of transcendence it's about being taken up with the gods right um so there's a kind of another disconnect there and i'm fascinated with the ways in which it's clear that at times hollywood wants to and does take its cues from what's going on you know at the grassroots level but then in other times it just doesn't care it just it just works on its own logic i think just um to circle back a little bit how did you fool the university and allowing you to, to teach this course. <laughs> That's very funny. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me, um, I, I, I'm asked a lot um, about whether or not I get blowback, whether or not have, have I encountered the kind of ridicule, the kind of raised eyebrows and, you know, the lack of funding and things that, 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 you know, has been a long story in the history of people interested in UFOs, right? The kind of stuff that Alan Hynek used to talk about and, and, and all of that. Um, and and I, I pointed out that what's interesting is that when I undertook this, I expected actually quite a bit of that. Um, uh, I began applying for grants <laughs> and I thought, well, we'll see what happens. And uh, to my to my surprise and delight, I got funding from NASA. I got funding from the American Historical Association, from the American Philosophical Society. Um, uh, uh, I've, 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 and then from the Smithsonian. So uh, and likewise, when it comes to teaching and, and talking about this stuff, um, I will say almost universally the response I get is, oh, wow, that is so cool. That is so neat. <laughs> this is so interesting. I've had I've had some some colleagues who've even said to me, I envy you. I I wish I could have done that. Or I had recent last year I had a a woman who would like to come to Penn State to do graduate studies who contacted me and said, I had no idea that you could study things like this at the university and do research on this. If I, I want to do that kind of thing. I had no idea you could do this. Um, and so I, I, part of part of what I feel like I'm doing is 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 sort of uh, opening up avenues for people to say, hey, you know, why have we been especially in history? Why have we been neglecting this? I mean, uh, it's it's such a rich history. And particularly as I listen to Eugene, I, I hear just. I'm reminded just how rich and fascinating these characters are in the history of this. We need to recover this stuff. We need to be able to talk about this and, and bring this to a wider audience and a wider public. We got more with Greg, Gene, and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. 
A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes, take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now 800-503-8625 welcome back to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio and now here's gene steinberg You were saying there that we need to bring all these strange characters, these curious, wacky characters, to a wider public. And that was one thing, especially in the early days. We had all of these unique characters. And one really good thing Jim Mosley did, he ran a monthly lecture series in New York City in the mid-60s. And the thing about it is he picked guests from all different areas of UFO research. Mm. Like we had this seven foot tall UFO contactee, Alexander McNeil. I lectured once before his group. We mm. had other people who were very serious about the subject, very scientific. We had Dr. Frank Stranges, another one of those contactees. All of these people, each month you didn't know who'd come on. And that was one thing Jim tried to stay in contact with all these people despite the different beliefs, the different factions in the UFO field. I bet if Richard Hall wanted to come on and they didn't hate each other, hmm. that he would be allowed hmm. to have lectured before Jim Mosley. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Yep, that is, that's wonderful. Yeah, so I, I from my standpoint, as I said, I, there may well be uh, colleagues and people out there who behind my back say something but I'm not aware of it. And, and as I said to you, I, I find student interest in this uh, topic pretty lively. 
Um, I suppose shouldn't be surprised. I mean, if you again, if you look at the history of the UFO phenomenon, I mean, the first sort of surveys that started to be conducted of public opinion about the subject in which they started to make some effort to break down public opinion into different groups of people and based on their age and and education and stuff that's only starts to take place in the mid 60s at the earliest but from from those very earliest surveys right on through the stuff that i've seen we constantly have seen that the interest interest in the paranormal in general and interest in ufo's and and a belief in the idea that that i'm willing to entertain there's something in here that that's valuable and important that tends to have a, a stronger support stronger following among younger people, people under the age, say, of roughly 24, right? Um, and that it's much, much weaker among people over the age of 60. And that's pretty consistent. That's pretty consistent over time. You know, what's interesting here is that in the old days, you think most of the people interested in UFOs were older people. Mm. But those groups, those groups, Gene, that you were participating in, I'm, I'm guessing most everybody involved was, was younger, well, they were younger at the time. Yeah, that's okay. What I mean. Remember, yeah. I was late teens, early twenties when I was doing yeah. it. Jim yeah. Mosley being what another ten, fifteen years older yeah. than that, so yeah. he would be in his thirties. Yeah. And a lot of the people that we knew were then in that age group. Of course, all of us have aged quite mm-hmm. a bit since then, more yep. <laughs> for some than for others. But no, I, I understand the point of view. Now, before we were going into the navigation of the UFO contact experience from something where you meet benevolent space brothers to something where the alleged space people are indifferent or even a little bit mean, especially where they're taking painful experiments, taking painful techniques to perform physical experiments on people. Right. And, you know, again, there, too, when you look at the history of of that, the history of those kinds of claims, again, it's like almost anything you study in history. I always tell my students any phenomenon or any social phenomenon you look at, it has no real actual beginning. The, The beginning is never the beginning. There's all these precursors to a phenomenon. So even though we tend to associate it with the kind of stuff that happens with Bud, that Bud Hopkins get, uh, is going to chronicle. There are, are traces of these kind of more, let's call them more sinister stories, or I think Coral Lorenzen used to call them hostility incidents. And that's actually a good place to begin because really one of the people, uh, Stringfield was one of the people who was, who was talking about this stuff already at a fairly early phase. But, but I think Cora Lorenzen in particular was, was really key in all of this. I, I credit her with actually a lot. I, I feel in many ways that, that Hopkins and Jacobs and, and maybe even Mac to some extent, maybe they just never read her. But um, basically, they they took a lot of what she had already argued already back in the late 50s and early 60s, at lock, stock and barrel, really. And, and she was already in, in the APRO Bulletin and, and in private, private papers. If you look at her private papers and you read private correspondence, she was talking about this stuff. And it's clear that. Uh, there is a set of narratives and, and stories and claims out there that are just 
um, not looking like the stuff that everybody else is talking about. It's not the contactees and it's not the, the, the sort of impish little green men. There, there's a kind of an, a dark edge to them. And, and she's trying to piece it all together, she says, in the 50s and 60s. And she ends up, you know, her, her early books in the, in the, in the, in the mid-early 60s um, sort of talk about this. But that stuff, you know, finally Flying Saucer Review in the mid-60s starts to take it seriously and talk about it. And then it it moves on. And you have some incidents, as, as you just talked about, Travis Walton, among others, uh, Betty Andreessen in the late 70s. But the thing really explodes in the 80s. And the key there is really going to be the fact that you have these crusaders. You have these high-profile figures, particularly Bud Hopkins David Jacobs, to maybe to a lesser extent in terms of the publicity that he gets, and Whitley Strieber, they, over the course of the 80s, really helped to turn this into a movement, right? It's, it's, it's something that needs to be pushed forward, right? Um, it needs to be something that, um, that, that needs to be not just talked about, but, but the people involved need to be given a voice and they need to be given a a place and a safe place to sort of uh, 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 talk about what they're doing and and seek support from one another. The uh, yeah the I've kind of stayed away from a lot of the, uh, the abduction uh, stories and, and cases. Um, I don't know it, it it's difficult for me to separate the. Um, the things like the sleep paralysis and things like that, you know, there's so so often there's there's little evidence, and that that kind of reminds me. So the Paracast old motto was separating signal from noise, and there's a lot of noise in the UFO <laughs> field. I mean, but I mean, we have things, and of course, some people say that you know there are that it's all baloney because they're fakes. Well, talk to a uh, owner of an art gallery, they have this huge issue of counterfeits and, you know, or go to the bank and ask them about counterfeit money. I mean, just because there's some fakery involved in a subject doesn't mean that there's not some core to it. So, mm. but it's very difficult for us to, to sort that out. So, you know, do you have advice for anyone to how they can you find what's genuine in all this? Yeah, you're you're quite right. I mean, we one of the things I I also talk about and, and and argue for is also realizing we have to say that part of the history of UFO sightings and reports and talk about it, but but also a, a alien contact claims involves um, hoaxing and lying and. And people trying to make a buck or people just looking for attention or maybe confused people who are looking for attention. That is part that is a part of that history as well. It clouds the subject. It makes it very difficult to at times know who's being sincere. Right. Let alone authentic. Right. Um, so it, it, it's one of the things I feel like on one hand, methodologically, you've always got to have that in mind. But I think what you do is you, you incorporate that into, again, this, what I'd said before, is the messiness of human history. Um, before has, we get too messy, we have yeah. these messy announcements. Right. <laughs> to be redundant about messiness. Greg, Gene, and Kurt, you're in the Paracast. 
Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. No matter if supply lines are down, product deliveries are slow, and that most everything costs more these days, you still have neck and shoulder pain, right? Good news. Sunny Bay has new products that target neck and shoulder pain. Products that are in stock now, ready to ship anywhere now. Like our extra long neck heating pads. They provide soothing relief to painful sore necks and backs. You can heat them in a microwave oven, and they come in a variety of colors and patterns. And for stress relief, get our lavender-scented hands-free neck wraps or maybe you need one of our smaller lower back wraps great for seniors again there's no shipping delays from sunny bay find our new products on amazon walmart etsy and sunny-bay.com just search for sunny bay neck wraps all our products are great for men or women are reusable and easy to clean remember just search for sunny bay neck wraps order now because stock is high and shipping is fast from sunny bay Anytime, any place, anywhere. Radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who've helped people that have been injured or wronged. Have you been diagnosed with cancer? Are you one of the millions who have taken Zantac or other generic versions of this popular drug to help treat stomach issues? Then pay close attention to this message. The FDA said it detected low levels of a probable cancer-causing chemical known as NDMA in Zantac and other generic forms of this popular drug. They've banned sales and even removed it from the market. If you've been diagnosed with cancer and you've taken Zantac or a generic equivalent, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses covered. And there's no upfront cost to you. They only get paid if you win. So please call now. 800 998-7173. 800-998-7173. That's 800-998-7173. Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. 
We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So, of course, we have supposedly real claims or reports in UFOs. We have the fakery. Did you encounter much evidence of fakery in doing your history and this research into the field? I don't think that fakery has played a particularly significant role. I don't believe that that hoaxing and fakery has, you know, sort of corrupted, you know, that all, all of the all of the the sightings and claims that are made, or that it's that it's it, it, it's it's you know that it somehow operates at a sort of almost pandemic level. No, I don't think it's that that wide has historically been that widespread. I think it's fair to say that by and large, most of the people. Uh, who come forward historically, who you read, most of them seem to be operating sincerely. That sincerity now, to be fair, may mean that some people may be sincere, but they may not be entirely correct in what they're talking about. You know, and there's no question there are people who where you have to maybe ask some more serious questions, right? I mean, again, we talked about George Adamski before. I think quite a number of people, including Jim Mosley, <laughs> fairly raised a lot of questions about the extent to which uh, some things are just plain old made up, that, that there wasn't even a, a, a sincerity there. Uh, though then you get contactees like Orfeo Angelucci, who I know a lot of people say, he seems to have been one of the most sincere of the contactees. But I would say, by and large, when you just talk about your your average UFO witness, um, I think there's a great deal of sincerity on most people's parts. Um, so I don't see that playing that critical a role in all this. Well, I can tell you, of course, that Jim Mosley and Gray Barker were not above perpetrating hoaxes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah like the Lost Creek flying sarsa photo, which was kind of really badly done. But mm-hmm. some people believed it. Yeah. Yeah. They were famous, I guess, in some circles, infamous for this, right? But they were puckish, right? That was that was part of what they that was part of what's kind of um, uh, alluring about about the both of them, if you like that kind of stuff. I'm guessing when they did things like that, they must have gotten uh, more than a few people uh, peeved at them. Well, we go back to the Straith letter, where a friend of Gray Barker's apparently had a relative who worked for the government, so they got official government stationery. Mm-hmm. And one time, one night during one of their drunken meetings, Barker and Mosley wrote these letters signed by R.E. Straith of the Cultural mm-hmm. Exchange Committee. They wrote one of them to George Adamski. Now, anyone mm-hmm. who knew Barker knew he had a distinctive writing style. Mm-hmm. And you know immediately, if you're going to look for a possible culprit, that's Barker. Barker did mm-hmm. it. So Adamsey responds, well, I, this guy, of course, is, is on the level here. He's recognizing that the government accepts my claims. Obviously, Adamsky made himself look like an idiot because of the mm-hmm. fact that the letter was fake. Everyone knew it was Barker at the time. Those who were in the field 
deeply those who were seriously involved, like Richard Hall, for example. And certainly I knew about it because Jim told me. But some people or a lot of people were taken in by all this and mm-hmm. kind of wondered what this was all about. Maybe there was secret government interest, and that's part of it. So that is part of what these guys did. Mostly it was under the influence of certain substances where they lost their inhibitions. <laughs> Another part of it is you have these organizations and they have monthly magazines you know, at the time, and, and there was competition between them. There was a constant demand for new material. And, you know, I know some of the shenanigans like the feuds were just to keep things interesting. And some of the hoaxes, I think, played into that also. But, you know, newspapers were not that much better because there would be something like kids playing with a flashlight on mm-hmm. a hill and they would say it was a mysterious light. They put the flying saucer headline on just anything that was in the air. I mean, it just because there was a huge public interest in it, you know, for a while, you know, we got, I don't know if it was in the 90s when the media was less likely to make UFO news stories, pretty mm-hmm. report on them. But, uh, you know, and that's come back around to some extent now, but if you look in the 50s and 60s and in that era, I mean, there was it was daily news. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Kurt, what what I would say, the way I would put it is this, and there's no question. Yeah, I mean, there were there were kids playing pranks and 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 you know all sorts of things going on. What I would say is what what could be said for a good deal of the coverage of UFO reports historically, certainly well into the 70s, probably even into the 80s. And this is true with both local newspapers and also within UFO groups that are covering stuff, is a tendency towards a lack of discrimination. And by discrimination, I mean the idea of trying to evaluate and assess a source of information or the sources of information um, and to do your due diligence into asking, you know, asking and and digging a little deeper than just a a sort of superficial reference to a newspaper article or superficial like phone call that we know that local newspapers and studies have shown this, that local newspapers covering this stuff oftentimes didn't do much more than just a quick phone call, if that. And we know that if you just look at some of the ways in which a lot of articles in, in UFO periodicals work, there was no differentiation between something that had been a kind of throwaway in, in the back of some newspaper somewhere and then a full-length article somewhere or a, a deep investigation. They, they both sort of carried oftentimes equal weight in terms of how an article would operate, including when you looked at people like even Jacques Vallée, who would do his statistical analyses. Uh, that, I think, to me, is more, is more endemic. And that's where the, the hoaxing gets folded into that. So it was kind of, for me, from, from a distance, from a critical standpoint, I think you can say that lack of, of differentiation and discrimination of sources, that has historically been fairly endemic you still see it on the internet, I think, quite a bit, even today. That, to me, is a kind of a chronic chronic problem and a chronic challenge for a lot of ufology. You know, it's probably worse today, I think, because mm. today anyone can be a publisher. Mm-hmm. You know, before, when you wanted to be a publisher in the 60s, it took a little bit of effort and often a little bit of money. 
But nowadays, you just get online and you say something. You want to produce a newsletter, you could do it on a Macintosh, Apple Macintosh computer mm-hmm. with free software called Pages. You can create ebooks, you can create magazines free. Upload it to your site, put it in PDF format. People can download it. You have a publication. You are now a publisher with no investment. Mm-hmm. So I yeah, think in I that don't... sense, it's worse. Greg Agikian yeah. joins us. He's a professor of history at Penn State University. And amongst the things he teaches, the world of the paranormal in terms of history, which we're exploring. And there's a thousand more things we can talk about. And though we're going to keep them around for after the Paracast, part of Paracast Plus too. With Gene and Greg and Kurt, you're in the Paracast. <laughs> for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented, made-in-America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com. Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the Mineral Doctor. You've heard me talk about 90 for Life for years. 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 2 fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed Arthur decks for animals. That's right. Your pets need 90 for Life, too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877-279-9422. That's 877-279-9422. Again, 877-279-9422. USA Radio News with Chris Barnes. A first wave of new U.S. troops deployed to Eastern Europe now setting up in Poland and in Germany. President Biden ordered the move in response to the continued threat of a Russian incursion into Ukraine. The troops' arrival coming amid reports Russia now has enough troops, tanks, and other military hardware poised along the Ukraine border to launch a full-scale invasion. Moscow has repeatedly said it has no such plans, blaming the West for stoking international tensions. However, Moscow has made it clear it's looking to prevent Ukraine from being able to join NATO. Hundreds of protesters in the streets of Minneapolis in response to the killing of a 22-year-old man. They were demanding justice for Amir Locke, fatally shot while apparently asleep and holding a firearm during a police raid a few days ago. This is USA Radio News. Two people fatally shot at an apartment complex in a suburb of Milwaukee yesterday. The man responsible later died of an apparent self-inflicted gunshot wound, but not before taking aim at police who responded to the scene, as we hear from the Brown Deer, Wisconsin Police Chief Peter Nimmer. Our officers were dispatched for a shots fired call. Upon our arrival to the scene, our officers were fired upon from the second floor balcony. No officers were wounded, but one other person, a civilian bystander, was injured, but not seriously. Snowboarder Julia Marino bringing home the United States' first medal of the 2022 Winter Olympics in Beijing, winning the silver medal in women's slope-style snowboarding. 
The FAA says there was a big increase in the number of dangerous laser strikes on aircraft last year. The report saying over 9,700 such incidents, a 41% increase over the previous year, were reported. This is USA Radio News. Stop aging now. Restore those joints. Boost your strength. Because it's official. Nutramedical has released the most exciting, powerful anti-aging supplement on the market. Dr. Bill Deagle's Red Deer Velvet DR has been approved by the U.S. Patent Office. Imagine stem cell rejuvenation all in one capsule without huge expense. Dr. Bill MD discovered that as an unborn baby grows in the mother's womb, he or she does not deteriorate or physically age. Red Deer Velvet DR, like the uterus, provides 300 biomolecules and six hormones protected in one special DR capsule that delivers lipid packages directly into your circulation. This patented technology bypasses the stomach and is released into the small bowel unaltered by digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Remember, Red Deer Velvet DR. Improve endurance, stimulate your immune system, increase learning ability, and even improve sexual libido with Red Deer Velvet DR. Click NutriMedical.com. That's N-U-T-R-I Medical.com. Or call toll-free 888-212-8871 and get on the road to a newer, rejuvenated, happier you. Hello, this is John Burroughs, one of the witnesses to the Rendlesham UFO incident. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Now, I understand here about discrimination and or lack of discrimination in the coverage of sightings like a place like MUFON will publish a sighting and you wonder if they investigated it and I can understand anyone involved in a small group who might do it certainly we did in the early days we didn't have the resources to investigate anything so we figured if it appeared in the newspaper there had been some degree of vetting and that wasn't always true on the other hand forgetting the phenomena of the 1890s and the 19th century where newspaper publishers would just make stuff up. Do we see that nowadays at all? Well, there's no question that there's stuff made up on the Internet, as we've just been talking about. Now, in terms of the newspapers and news coverage, the thing is, is that one of the things that hasn't changed you know, is that basically, you know, all forms of media or most all forms of media are monetized or want to be monetized. And so they're going to chase the money. And, um, you know, you can wag your finger at it. On one hand, to be fair to it, you say, well, that's how you stay alive. Um, You know, it's pretty hard to do this stuff for free. But it does create um, that dynamic that Kurt was talking about before, and that is the, the, the permanent search for sensationalism, for the sensational. And the dynamic that historically has created, right, is therefore always keeping the story alive. And that, that you both have been talking about how, again, this sort of maybe competitive quality within the UFO community did the same kind of thing. And newspapers and magazines have operated in the same way. And it hasn't changed, right, when it, when it goes to kind of the personalities and the groups that, that, that go around today uh, on, on the Internet. So it seems to me that, you know, in a sense, it, it, perhaps it's, it's inescapable that this would be part of it. Of course, the problem with that, besides making it even more difficult to sort of, you know, cut through this stuff to find out it, where's the authenticity, is that this is one of the chief reasons 
why you see academics, particularly scientists, want to steer clear of this stuff. So when I talk to my colleagues who work in um, astronomy, for instance, they, they always talk about the fact that even if they have some interest in the topic or see some value in discussing this issue, that they feel like if they don't want to get too close because it's corrupted or I don't know if they use that term, but I'll use it. It's been corrupted by these cultural dynamics, by the sensationalism. And they seek a kind of, <laughs> my other term, not theirs, boring sobriety. That's what they want. <laughs> and so they find this other stuff to be, go back to the signal noise, too much noise, too much cultural noise that is interfering with the ability to say, do, do this in any kind of serious fashion, which is why they feel in the end, many of them do. I just want to keep this stuff at a, at a distance. Well, speaking of astronomers, so we've got this Harvard project and um, we've talked about it a few times on the show, the um, Project Galileo or Galileo Project, I forget which it is. And um, Avi Loeb is is. He's interested in uh, extraterrestrial bodies moving through our uh, solar system, and that's great. But he's kind of connected it with the UFO world now. However, he's not interested in the stuff we've been talking about, historical cases. So he's uh, he's partnered with a few people, including Jacques Vallée, and uh, has several other UFO people as associates. Um, but without... Well, I'll just I'll, I'll say our point of view, and then you you can you can tell us what you think. But we feel that by by uh, ignoring the past, you know, I understand there is a lot of noise in there. But there's some also some very solid cases that can, and some also some research methods that should be useful going forward. So we think that's unfair to just sort of just pack that away and look only at what you can detect with the radar or a telescope. So, so what's your take on this? Yeah, wow, it's it is it's, again fascinating, and I'll I'll talk about it as as by and large as a as a you know a, a social a new social development. Um, yeah, so I've noted that too, you, as you might imagine. I noted it when he made it very clear. Yeah, we're not going to talk about historical and, and past events. Um, uh, part of me views that as a response to just what I was talking about. Um, on one hand, he, he's a smart fellow. He, he knows that even though he's been willing to put himself out there and say, I'm willing to use the words and, 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 and walk the walk and get engaged in this topic, he also recognizes that it, it can, it's going to be fraught with all sorts of challenges. And from colleagues and people who sit there and say, you know, this stuff is so um, contaminated with so many cultural artifacts and assumptions, it's, it's, it'll be impossible to navigate this and to do this in a scientifically rigorous way. I, I viewed his, his sort of renunciation of past cases to be an expression of that, of, of a way to sort of avoid that. I kind of agree with you and you guys that I don't think that logically makes sense to me because the value the the reason why you even begin to think these these things are extraterrestrial is because of the historical debates and arguments that have been going on in part 
The other part of it is you still have to ask yourself a historical question, right? You still have to ask yourself the question is, let's say uh, the Galileo Project finds something and says, boy, this looks promising. You still got to ask yourself the question. Um, so they the, 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 the extraterrestrials just sort of popped up yesterday? Have they been here before? How long ago was it? It does seem to me you still end up having to kind of excavate the past and, and past incidents in, in order to, to have that conversation. So I don't think you, you, you quite skirt this historical question in all of this. So I, I, I kind of agree with you on that front. Well, the other question, of course, is if we don't investigate the previous cases, a lot of compelling evidence, important evidence is being ignored. Mm-hmm. The UFO field didn't start in 2004. Right. And exactly. we understand calling them UAP instead of UFO because of the stench of the acronym UFO, just like when UFO was created, flying saucers was overwrought. So we had to call them UFOs. And now after all these years, we'll call them UAP. Okay, musical names, no big deal. And if UAP doesn't do it, they'll invent something else. Maybe they'll use UAO, which is what APRO called them, unidentified aerial objects that never took off. Yeah. No, right. I mean, uh, I agree with you. Um, and it, it, you, you, can't, you can't neglect this other material it, it, it is fraught and the other point is is that that it it is something that you know as you well know uh veteran ufologists have been noting about a lot of the people who are now sort of the the most prominent figures out there who are kind of crusading for the recognition of uap or ufos these days is that that most all of them are people who don't have uh, much of a historical background about this stuff, um, don't seem to be much aware or interested in that historical background. And I know from talking with, you know, veterans in, in ufological research that that's a sore point with them and, and they feel it's a shortcoming in, 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 in all of this stuff. Right. Well, you know, so, uh Lou Elizondo would be one of those. Uh, he he claims that well, when he was studying this phenomena for the government, that he will uh, willfully ignored history because he didn't want it to contaminate his point of view. And uh, it seems seems odd that he was chosen for that program. And, and since he has eventually picked up some things, but he doesn't have a really good good grasp on it. More to come with Kurt Collins, Greg Agigian. And Gene Steinberg, you're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. 
We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork. You know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800 507 3137. 800 507 3137. That's 800 507 3137. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of AD After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So Kurt Collins had started with an explanation here that I want him to continue. Kurt? 
Well, Greg was mentioning about some of the people involved in the field now not being aware of the past. And he was a gentleman and didn't name names. And I jumped out with the name Lou Elizondo as an, as an example of that. Uh, he has cited some historical cases recently, but only those that he thought kind of connected to, you know, with something with the lozenge shape or, you know, something that would support there being tic-tacs throughout history. And, and otherwise, he's pretty much to ignore the topic. That, that was my little jab I wanted to get in. So now, Greg, where do you want to take it? <laughs> I guess the one thing I, I'm, I'm curious to go back to the Galileo project, right, because Elizondo is one of the people now who's, who's in part consulting, right, with that project is that right now the idea is that Loeb has said we welcome the input of people from outside ac academia. We want to collaborate across, you know, all sorts of boundaries here. It's a big tent. I think that's actually in many ways quite a positive and quite, at least to my mind, it's it's way better than an antagonistic approach to things. It's somewhat reminiscent of, from in my mind, to go to think historically of the way the Condon Committee in the 60s started, at least, right? It talked about doing things that way. And of course, those of us who know that history knows that that unraveled and unraveled pretty fast and really descended into a lot of acrimony. The question remains open. Can these disparate groups and parties involved in the Galileo Project get along? I think they're going to find that, that people are going to have different agendas, uh, different approaches. Ultimately, it's very, very clear that this is Avi Loeb's project and he's going to be in charge. So we'll see. But the, the jury is still out again, about how the, how well everybody's going to be able to sort of work this out as a collaborative venture. Let me throw something at you here in this final segment of our main show, and that is one thing we have not mentioned. We've talked about contactees, UFO flaps, the various people. The R word, Roswell. Mm -hmm. Have you spent much time looking into that? Okay, I'm going to say something I'm going to really make some people angry, I suppose, is that I haven't. I know of it. I know of a, about a lot of the stuff surrounding it. I, and I think the primary reason why I haven't um, delved into it a lot, and, and um, I probably will not necessarily donate a, a good deal of my book to it, is because, again, in terms of the way in which the history of interest in UFOs played out, it wasn't a very large event until, you know, Stanton Friedman and et al. got involved in it and, and sort of got it going. And then, of course, it became a, a major event. But by and large, I, I, I haven't sort of centered on it. Again, I'm familiar with the, the initial stories and some of the contradictions and then some of the ways in which then the, the, the story was rediscovered again and how it became a part of UFO lore by the 1980s. But to me, it, it still seems to be, if you look at the history, it didn't occupy a very prominent place in, in a lot of the major discussions that were going on. I kind of agree with you because I didn't think much about Roswell until the book came out with yeah. Stan Friedman, who didn't even get a byline. He was credited. William Moore, yeah. of course, probably was partly responsible for perpetrating the MJ-12 document hoax. Mm -hmm. And Charles Berlitz, best known as the grandson of the founder of the Berlitz Language Schools. 
So he was a spoiled rich kid who, in his 60s, became famous for writing the Bermuda Triangle, Triangle. the Philadelphia Experiment. These books, by the way, his later books name me as a source, but we won't get into that. (laughs) I just got free lunches. I didn't get any money for it. I got free lunches (laughs) from Charles. He was a character himself. You can do a whole book on Charles Berlitz. He was a fascinating character with a twinkle in his eye. And he'd say so often, I'm honest as the day is long. And I always felt he was saying that in the winter when the days were shorter. <laughs> so if Roswell doesn't do it for you, let's just let's say, give you a semi-hypothetical situation. Another professor comes up, doesn't have an interest in UFOs, and he's going to give you a chance. And he says, what's a case that I can dig into from a historical point of view? So what's one or two that you're going to tell him to look at? I want to look at what would interest most of, of my colleagues. I will tell you right away, I think, and I actually talked about this with colleagues um, at, a, at a workshop uh, last fall, a um, bunch of historians, and they were fascinated, never had heard about it. And that, that is the Hill case, Betty and Barney Hill case. Uh, historians uh, find that very, very fascinating. In in part, uh, it has a lot to do with the fact that they're a biracial couple in the 1960s. And the fact that, of course, they, they both come from these very committed, uh, religiously devout and um, progressively engaged, right, political individuals. That one really gets people's attention and they find that uh, quite fascinating. I think the other one is probably Whitley Strieber, because not just because of his fame, but, but the story and how he frames the story and how complicated it is by all these questions about, is this a positive ex- experience? Is this a religious experience? Is this something damaging to me? I think historians would actually find that, and particularly the moment that that story emerges, I think they'd find that enormously engaging. I have a quick question about it here. In terms of the hills, the hills live near a military base. They, of course, had suffered because of the early 60s, some effects of being a biracial couple. Could they have been the victim of some kind of government experiment? Mm. Yeah, I don't know that I see that. The thing that I keep coming back to is how important and pivotally important Betty's dreams were to her and how the the entire line of what what it was that they both were experiencing or both remember experiencing gets tied into those dreams and her write up of her dreams and the way she sort of assembled them and, and put them all together in a cohesive narrative. I keep coming back to those the fact that so much seems based on her dreams and nightmares that strikes me as compelling. Certainly looking at the reality of that. I met her once, and this is in the 70s, where she was a woman, and I guess in her 60s or something like that. And she seemed very nice, very Mm. pleasant. And who could say what happened to them? Obviously, Mm. Barney Hill had been long dead, I think, Mm. from brain cancer or a brain tumor, if I recall. Was that correct, Kurt? You know, I'm not sure, but yeah, it, it, it's sad that we lost him so early, and mm. and I think we needed to hear his point of view a little more. Mm-hmm. We're going to have more of Greg Agigian's point of view on After the Paracast. Meantime, for listeners to the regular show, where do we find more information about you? Do you have a website or something? I have a Twitter account, and I tweet 
somewhat regularly <laughs> at uh, hashtag G Agigian. And otherwise, uh, you can always look me up on the department website and see what I'm up to and what I'm publishing. And I publish some articles every now and again. So just Google me and you'll find a number of different articles I've written on the whole history of UFOs. You can find us on Twitter if you look for The Paracast on Twitter. We're also The Paracast on Facebook, where for some reason they won't let us put in the URL for our site on Facebook because they're crazy. Maybe that's why they, they didn't take in as much money and memberships have stalled. We did it. You can also get branded merchandise for The Paracast at theparacast.shop, theparacast.shop, where we give you four different logos to choose from, and you pick the shirt and the size and all that other good stuff. And we also have the Paracast Plus, a special subscription service. We feature this show with higher quality audio, better bit rate, free of the network ads. How about that? It's like paying a higher figure for Paramount Plus, and you get the shows without the commercials. No commercials. (laughs) And we also offer the After the Paracast podcast, where Greg will be back with some further discussion, a lot of fascinating, unfiltered discussion. That's after the Paracast. To learn more, go check out the Paracast.plus, the Paracast.plus. Get this. If you use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20, we will give you a 20% discount on five-year and lifetime subscriptions, the Paracast.plus. Greg Agigian, glad to meet you. Thank you for joining us on the Paracast. Thanks. Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.